Happy Sabbath. Sharon and I are just so honored and, uh, and humbled to be here with you in Honoka'a and, uh, and to worship. I just want to say right from the very start that uh, uh, we are so grateful for these beautiful lays. I know that they are given with much aloha, and I can assure you that they are received with much aloha as well. Did notice when walking in this morning, though, something was different about this place. From the last time Sharon and I were here, which was a year ago, it's the pews. Is this not correct? Are these pews from the Kahului Church? I thought I recognized them. <laughs> no, I know that they're in a refurbishing. Uh, it's major refurbishing. And in fact, they are planning their opening Sabbath, I believe, is June the 12th. And so they are very, very close. Massively changed the inside of the church. So they ordered new pews. But this is very nice. Are, are you happy with this? Are you happy with it? Yeah, very, very nice. So it, uh, it fits, uh, you know, it's, it, I, did you have to cut them down? You just put them right in? They just fit? God is good. God is good. But we have been blessed from the moment that we have arrived. Uh, Brother Leroy met us out in the parking lot. We walked here into the church. And Carol, what, what a wonderful opening Sabbath school comments. I've learned so much about color today that I didn't know before. Thank you for sharing that. And Joyce, these are, this is such a terrific uh, quarter's lessons once again. That was so, uh, so wonderful. Uh, the music, the singers, uh, Brent on the piano, very nice. Now, you see, I appreciate this, Brent, because Sharon is a music teacher. She teaches piano lessons and flute lessons. I know to play the way that you play, you must have practiced somewhere along the way. So you were a good student. So I don't know who your piano teacher was, but they were no doubt very, very proud that you practiced. And uh, beautiful, beautiful music. Just so, so uh, grateful. You know, there are 30 churches in the Hawaii Conference spread out over six islands. So I have this, this wonderful, wonderful privilege of every Sabbath uh, worshiping in, a, uh, in one of our churches on one of these islands. And when I talked to Pastor Keala about worshiping here today, uh, I keep track of the rotation. At that time when I scheduled it, Honoka'a was going to be the church where I had officially been around to all 30 churches three times. But there was a change in schedule. There's another church out there that will not be the final one. But uh, I, was, I was looking forward to this out because I knew I've been to all the churches at least three times. I have one more church to go. But uh, I see, I was thinking I was going to save the best for last. It was going to be right here in Honoka'a. But uh, anyway, it is, it is such a joy. I do want to take just a moment and express how much I appreciate um, the pastoral family that you have here in Honoka'a. Pastor Keala, his lovely wife, Yvette. Anya, she, bless her heart, every time I see her, she just keeps growing and growing and growing. What are you feeding her, a potluck? I, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, she is so, so precious. But Pastor Keala is, has been blessed with many wonderful gifts, leadership and ministry. I know that he has faithfully served here in Honoka'a for many years. And uh, I can assure you that as president of the conference and on behalf of the entire conference, uh, I do appreciate him and, and his family. And I know that you do too. So, uh, so God is good. I noticed in the bulletin was a, uh, uh, the title of my sermon is following the lamb, which specifically is a, is a study I've been doing lately here 
on the uh, subject of the 144,000. It's not really a subject that, that I have heard preached very many times through the years, nor as a pastor have I preached, but I have been spending a bit of time studying it, and uh, so I'm excited about sharing that with you as we open uh, God's Word. But before we do, I want to invite you to just join me another time as we, uh, as we take a moment in prayer. Father, our hearts are full. Uh, we are so blessed to be able to come here on this, your holy Sabbath day, to worship as Ohana, to be able to open your word in freedom. And this is a gift that we know will not last forever. How important it is as we think about Hebrews chapter 10 that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as you see the day approaching. So may we actually in our hearts determine that whenever the opportunity is, is given, to be able to come here and to worship, to study, and to grow. So I'm just so thankful for everyone who is uh, in this house of worship today. Bless us now as we take these holy pages. May the same spirit that inspired the writers now inspire our hearts to a further understanding. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a rather interesting experience happen to me when I graduated from high school. This was in 1976. And uh, in my mind, I knew I was going to go to college. At that point in time, I had, I had a, a conviction in my heart that uh, God was calling me to become a, a pastor. And so I had chosen a college that I'd never, ever seen before, Walla Walla College. I don't know. Have some of you ever been to Walla Walla, Washington? I see your heads nodding. And uh, so I still remember I, I packed up all of my earthly belongings, which I think fit in a suitcase and a bicycle. That's pretty much all I had when I started off in, in college. And my parents drove me. And uh, I just remembered we went from, uh, this was my parents at that time were living in the Dakotas. So we left Jamestown, North Dakota. My father was the president of the uh, Dakota Conference. Drove all the way across. When we got into Washington, I remember as we got closer and closer to Walla Walla, I mean, there's just nothing there. Those of you who've been there, there's just, it's just flat. It's just farm. It's just nothing. I was wondering, man, where in the, how did I choose this sight unseen? Never seen Walla Walla before. I'm thinking, there is just nothing here. And I distinctly remember as we pulled into Walla Walla, you know how it is with most towns, there's this huge sign out in front, and it said, welcome to Walla Walla. And then it gave the population, population 44,000. So I thought, well, yeah, that's a nice-sized town. As we came around the curve, as we drove right by the sign, I looked closer, and somebody had taken a can of spray paint and had sprayed the number one in front of the 44. So now it said, welcome to Walla Walla, population 144,000. I thought, well, you know, I have arrived to the right place. So I want you to know, I have lived among the 144,000. But having lived there for a few years, I don't think that's the actual description that we discover in Scripture. And so I want to take your Bible and open it up to Revelation chapter 7. It's rather interesting that uh, there's really only two places in the Scriptures, and they're both found in the Apocalypse and Revelation, where we find a little description concerning this special end-time group. And the first is in Revelation chapter 7. We're talking about God's end-time people, and as you're making your way over to Revelation chapter 7, I think it is very significant that Ellen White herself has given this appeal in which she says, let us strive 
with all the power that God has given us to be among the 144,000, in quotes. So the, the natural question is, who are these people? Well, there's just two chapters. We're going to look at the very first description here in Revelation chapter 7. Seems to me that John the Revelator, his head must be spinning by now. He has never seen so much action in his life in vision. And now he takes another apocalyptic breath as another scene splashes across the canvas of his racing heart. Notice what it says here now. Revelation chapter 7. We'll pick it up in verse 1. After these things I saw, John the Revelator says, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Verse 4, and I heard. Now, this is kind of interesting. So far, verses 1 to 3, it's I see, I've, I saw, I saw, I saw. Come to verse 4, and now notice he says, I heard. What did he hear? John says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, let your eyes drop down to verse 9, because he has just seen this group over here. They're the 144,000. Now listen to another group that he notices. Verse 9, same chapter. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Now, he's just heard this number, 144,000. Now he sees what he describes as a great multitude, which no one could number. Here's a description. They come from all the nation, tribes, peoples, tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Verse 2, crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now, I have a question for you this Sabbath. This is a question that I have heard wrestled with from time to time. And I suppose I, I haven't really heard it too much lately because it's not a subject we really talk about that much anymore. Now, perhaps Pastor Keala touches on the theme of 144,000, but I think in a typical setting, Adventist just, this is not a subject that we really contemplate and meditate and study as much as perhaps we did as a people previously. But here's the question. Let me pose it this way. Do you think that God has a different standard? Or does God have a higher standard for his end-time generation people, i.e., the people who will be alive when Jesus comes? Does God expect from them a higher standard than his people who lived in previous generations. Now, don't answer too quick, all right? I want, you, this, I want you to just contemplate this for just a moment. This is a question that we're going to work our way through here a little bit this Sabbath. But does God expect something different from his end-time generation than from the generations of people that have gone before who are now laid in the grave and at the sound of the voice of Christ, the giver of life, will be raised at the second coming of God and then be taken to their eternal home. Is there a different 
standard for us. And I say us because I do believe with all of my heart that we truly are the end time generation. I just believe that. Is there a different standard for us? Well, maybe to help answer that, let's go to the second major passage that deals with the 144,000. So go over seven more chapters to Revelation chapter 14. This is the, uh, this is the second major in-depth insight that we have concerning the 144,000. All right? Notice what it says here. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 and then backing up and taking a little bit uh, more in-depth look at some of these verses. Okay, this is John the Revelator once again. And uh, this is chapter 14. John says, Now I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on a Mount Zion. And with him, here it is again, 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. I mean, just imagine John the he's hearing things. He's, he's seeing these things. I mean, it had to have been in just multicolor. I, it's hard to imagine how he was able to just write these things down so quickly and rapidly. Verse 3, and they sing, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Verse 4, these are the ones who were not defiled. Now, these are very crucial, the wording here, so just follow very, very carefully. These, referring now, obviously, to the 144,000, these are the ones who were not defiled with What's that word? Women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the lamb. Verse 5, and in their mouth was found no deceit or guile, for they are without fault or blameless before the throne of God. Now listen, I, I just want to clarify something very, very quickly here at the very beginning. In verse 4, it says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women. They are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever they go. These are the ones who have been sealed with the seal of God. Notice the contrast here. At the end of time, there are going to be two distinct groups, not a third, just two. There will be the group that have been sealed with the seal of God. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. But there is another group. If you go just a little bit further back in Revelation chapter 13, verse 16, here's a description. He causes all, both small, great, rich, and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand in their foreheads. You have a group here, seal the living God. You have a group over here, mark of the beast. This is it, the two groups. You have a group. You basically have the world who has said, you know what? We have chosen intentionally to embrace the culture of our day. And they follow the culture. Over here, you have a group that says, no, we have chosen to go counterculture. And we have chosen to follow the lamb, Christ, wherever he goes. Wherever. This is the contrast. God's last day generation the people over here who have chosen to simply accept the culture, follow the culture, wherever the ch culture says you go, they go. All right? So now, this is one I want to touch on before we go any further, because I know one of the questions that always comes up is the question, is this a literal number or is it a symbolic number? When it, when it comes to the 144,000, you know, it's rather interesting. I think it was maybe two or three months ago, I... I 
I was reading through the Adventist Review, and uh, they actually had an article in there, and the article was dealing with this subject, the 144,000. In it, the author, the author had come to the conclusion that, in his study, at least in his research, that he believed that the number was symbolic and not literal. And, and let me share with you his reasoning. His reasoning is, if you look at the description of the 144,000, Revelation chapter 7 says very clearly that they come from the tribe of Israel. So if you take it literally then, they would need to be a Jew. You come to Revelation chapter 14, it goes on and says they were not defiled by women, so it would have to be a man, and it says that they were virgins. So if you looked at the, the number, according to this author, as being literal, the number is literal to be consistent in scripture, then the description would also need to be literal. So you would have 144,000 Jews, male, virgins. And his hypothesis was, listen, exegetically, you can't have one symbolic and the other literal. Do you kind of know what he's saying here? So if one is symbolic, the description must also be uh, uh, symbolic. I've kind of come to this conclusion in, write, in reading Ellen White. This is a statement that she made here uh, years ago. She wrote this in 1901. I think she wrote it in response to some of the arguments that were going on over, well, who makes up the 144,000? Is it literal? Is it symbolic? Notice what she said. She says, it is not his or God's will that they should get into controversy over questions which will not help them spiritually such as who is to compose the 144,000, i.e. I don't know if it's really necessary for us to all get worked up in a frenzy over the exact details concerning it. I think there is a message concerning the 144,000 that is very applicable for us today. This is the message that I'd like for us to touch on. Are you okay with that? So I don't have a problem. If somebody says it's literal, my friend, I'm okay with that. If somebody wants to say it's symbolic, you know, I'm okay with that. What I'm most concerned about is what are the characteristics of the 144,000 that I want to make sure is being lived out in my life today? That's what I think is very, very crucial. So let's go back to the original question. And again, before you're too quick to give an answer, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at this in the scriptures. Does God, has God set a higher standard? Does he have a different expectation for his end-time generation just before he comes, than all the other generations that have gone before. All right, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to go back to verse 5, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 5. Let's take a moment. Let's examine this together, all right? We're going to do a little old-fashioned Bible study here this morning. Are you okay with that? You have your Bible, right? Now, we're going to look at quite a few verses of Scripture, so you're going to need to let your fingers do the walking. You know what I'm talking about here? So there's no, there's no Scripture on, on the screen. You're going to need to find the scripture very quickly, but I know as Seventh-day Adventists, we are people of the book, and we know where these books are, and we'll be able to, uh, to find it. So here's the question. Notice here in verse 5, it says, now this is the description again of the 144,000. It says, in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault. Another word that you can find in your, in your translation, they are blameless before the throne of God. Here's the question. Are they the first to live blameless lives? Of all the generation, is this the only generation that God expected to be living blameless before him? Let's look at that for just a moment, all right? If, if you would take your scripture now and go 
back to Genesis. I know that we spent some time there in our uh, lesson study this morning. Go to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to look at some... In By the way, I'd encourage you, if you have a piece of paper and a pencil, you may want to jot some of this down here. This is a very fascinating study that I have been uh, enjoying as I have journeying on the study as far as the 144,000. Here, here's the, you know, one of the characteristics of the 144,000, they're to be blameless. Are they the first to be blameless of God's people? All right? To live blameless lives. What about Noah? Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. All right? Let's, uh, let's look at this. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, verse 9. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect, i.e. blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. Did Noah, according to scriptures, live a blameless life? Yes, yes. What about Abraham? Go over just a little bit further now to Genesis chapter 17. All right. What about Abram? who became Abraham. Genesis chapter 17. Abraham now is, he is 99 years of age. Notice what it says here in Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. All right? This is what the scripture says. And Abram, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be what? blameless. Hi, it seems to me that the description of God's end-day people to live a life that is blameless, God has already had this expectation from the very beginning of time. Verse 2, God says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. God talked with him. Special. It looks like God expected this a long time ago. What about Job? Go to Job now. Job chapter 1 verse 1. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. That's the way to find it. All right? I love the opening lines of, uh, of Job. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Actually, it's just a great, great verse of Scripture. Here it is. Notice what it says here concerning Job. Job chapter 1, the book of Job, and we're going to look at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. They had some strange names back then, didn't they? But think about this for a moment. How do you think the people would feel back in the days of Job if it would have started with this? There was a man who lived in the land of Honoka'ah. Now, that probably would have sounded strange to them, right? Us sounds strange to us. Honoka'ah probably would have sounded strange to them. All right, notice this, though. There was a man in the, that lived in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was what? All right, blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. By the way, I'm uh, reading from the New King James uh, translation here and studying with that here this uh, this out. Now listen, this is not just an Old Testament teaching. This whole idea of God's expectation for his people throughout all generations to live a life that is blameless. Let's go to the New Testament for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5 now. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. All right, back to the New Testament, and we're going to be going back and forth a little bit here this morning as we go through this study. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, this is specifically dealing with people, the church, New Testament times. Here it is, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. 
All right, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish, blameless, talking about the church. All right? Rather interesting. Now, if, if you look again, Revelation chapter 14, I don't know if you can put a little bookmark there because we're going to be going back and forth periodically because we're looking at these characteristics that make up the 144,000. We're in verse 5 and are working our way back, all right? So it says that they are without fault or blameless. We looked at that, and it's very, very clear. God has already had an expectation that his people live a blameless life, but it also says in verse 5 that in their mouth was found no deceit. No lies. No lies. God's last day generation before he comes will be a people who will live without deceit, i.e., no lies. But was this an expectation for his people before then? Well, look at this. Uh, how about the Gospel of John, chapter 1? What did Jesus say about Nathaniel? John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 47. Nathaniel. By the way, Nathan is a great, great name. I have a nephew. Who was, who was named Nathan, so I like the name. But, but look again what Jesus said about Nathanael. John chapter 1, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, in other words, he's referring to Nathanael, all right? He says, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. No deceit, no lies. So obviously Nathaniel lived prior to the generation that we are living right now, just before the coming of Christ. This is a characteristic that we find of the 144,000. It seems to me pretty obvious that uh, it is a characteristic that God expected of his people long before this is last final generation. All right, here's another one. Are they the first to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Is the last day generation the very first generation to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Well, check this out again. Go back to Genesis chapter 5, all right? Old Testament, New Testament, it's all very, very consistent. But go to Genesis chapter 5. What about Enoch? You remember Enoch, don't you? What about Enoch? Uh, Enoch is a great, great study. And uh, we'll pick it up here, actually, in, uh, in verse 21. This is Genesis chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. In other words, Enoch is 65 years old, and he becomes a dad for the very first time. How many 65-year-olds in here would like to become a dad for the first time? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe a grandfather, but not a dad. Verse 22, and he begat Methuselah. Enoch walked with God 300 years, had sons and daughters. Verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Verse 24, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God to did Is Enoch one who lived a life that followed the Lamb, i.e., followed God wherever he went? Yes. In fact, I'll give you another one. Just go to the very next chapter. It says right here, Noah. We already talked about Noah just a little earlier, but in verse 9, it is very clear. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Here's another characteristic of God's last day people, the 144,000 before Jesus comes. Are they the first to be pure? 
morally, spiritually. Live lives that are pure and honoring God as to how they live their lives in a moral way and a spiritual way. Is the last generation the very first to do this? Well, what about Joseph? What about Joseph? Here's, a, here's an illustration that I think is worth looking at. Genesis chapter 39. You may want to jot that down and go back to Genesis chapter uh, 39. Did Joseph live a pure, moral life? You remember the story. Here's Joseph. Hey, he's sold into slavery, not even living at home any longer. I mean, Joseph could have just simply said, as in Rome, do as the Romans. So here he is, surrounded by all these foreign pagan gods, but Joseph had determined in his heart, in his life, he was going to be faithful to the one and true holy God. And when faced with a moral temptation with Potiphar's wife, which he could have simply said, hey, listen, it wasn't my choice to be sold into slavery. I never chose to live this life. Nobody is else around. What they don't know won't hurt them. Why not just sleep with her and be done with it? Was Joseph morally pure? Yes, he was. He said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against who? God. You see, Joseph represents those who are faithful and pure in their relationship to Christ. Whereas in Revelation chapter 18, it talks about the harlot, the whore that the world follows after. Joseph represents those who follow and they are morally pure in their commitment to God. Joseph morally pure? Absolutely. What about spiritually pure? Well, think about those three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did they bow down to that false worship? Nebuchadnezzar makes it very clear, out there in the plain of Dura, when you hear the music, there is this 90-foot golden image made to himself. You hear the music, you either bow or you're going to burn. Those are the two options. Nothing in between. The music plays, you bow to the music and to the image. If not, that will be your final destiny, the fiery furnace. The music plays. The whole world drops to its knees in worship. And when the dust finally settles, silhouetted across the skyline, there are three still standing. So Nebuchadnezzar says, all right, boys, come on over here. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you didn't catch the instructions quite clearly. Let me repeat them one more time. The music you bow, you don't bow, you burn. What's your choice? And they said, listen, you don't need to remind us. Play the music all day long if you wish. We will not bow. There is one God whom we serve, and it is not you, Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. Spiritually pure. They will not bow down to the image of the beast. In the final generation, oh yes, there will be those who will willingly bow. But God will have the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego represented by this 144,000 who will not bend the knee. Amen? All right. Are they the first to be sealed? I mean, it says that in Revelation 14. Are they the first to be sealed? Or have there been those in the past, in the previous generation, that God has expected to be sealed? Ah, that's an interesting question. What about God-fearing Jews? Write this down, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 4. Let's take a look at this. Ezekiel chapter 9, 
verse 4. This whole idea of being sealed, was there ever another, was there a time in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in which God expected his people to be sealed? Now, this is, a, this is an interesting story. We don't have time this, this morning to unpack it here together. But notice what takes place here, Ezekiel chapter 9, and you may want to go back and, uh, and look at this again. All right, the Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark, i.e. a seal, on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that have been done. This is the way I envision it here for us today. God says, listen, move through the churches of the Hawaii Conference. Move through the homes of our people. Move through the neighborhoods where our people are and put a seal on those who are faithful to me. Listen, it's not just an Old Testament teaching. Make your way over now to God-fearing Christians. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Do we find anything in scriptures dealing with being sealed God's people being sealed even before his last generation. Ephesians chapter 1, all right? Now it's not God-fearing Jews, it's God-fearing Christians. Ephesians chapter 1, and let's look at verse 13. Hopefully I'm not moving too rapidly, but maybe you can write some of these passages down and go back and study them again. Notice this, here it is, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So now listen, being sealed is not just an end-time generation thing. You can go back to the Old Testament, go back to the New Testament. There is a sealing process that is that is taking place. Now look, even though you come to Revelation chapter 14, and in verse five, it appears the description of the 144,000 end, I think it would be appropriate to also include Revelation 14 verse 12. Because Revelation chapter verse 14, 12 is a description of God's last day people. So here it is. Revelation chapter 14, I believe, verse 12, is also a description of these 144,000. This is what it says. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the question is, do they obey the commandments, this end-time generation? Are they the first to obey the commandments of God, this end-time generation? Well... What about Daniel? Go to Daniel now. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 and uh, 5. All right? Make your way over to, uh, to Daniel. Have God's people faithfully kept his commandments, or is it just a description of God's last day generation keeping his commandments? What about Daniel? What kind of a life did he live? All right? Obviously, he has been, uh, because of, uh, of the, uh, the takeover of the Jewish nation, now he finds himself in, uh, in Babylon. So you remember the story well. We don't need to go into a lot of detail. Verse 4, this is, what it, uh, this is what it says. So the governors and satraps sought to find some jar charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge, no fault, because he was faithful, 
nor was there any error or fault found in him, verse 9. Then these men said, Shall we shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the what? Concerning the law of God. Was Daniel familiar with the very first commandment that said, Thou shalt have no other what? Gods before me. So a decree goes out, either you pray to this God or you're going to be thrown into where? The dying's den. Did Daniel choose to be faithful to the commandments of God? Yes. I mean, could he have chosen to simply, well, it's an, I'll close all the windows of the house and I'll go into my closet and I'll pray. Nope. As his custom was, throws it wide open. In the middle of the day, he finds himself in an attitude to prayer to the one and only true God keeps the commandments of God. What about holding on to the faith of Jesus? I tell you, there's once again so many examples of this, but I think I'd like to take you to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Would you make your way over to 2 Timothy chapter 4? Because here we find the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. He is literally on the verge of losing his life as a martyr for his faith in God. Notice his final words. This is it. There, we, you do not find anything beyond 2 Timothy as far as Paul's writings. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And let's actually, let's back up and look at verse 6. Paul writes, he says, For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering. He knows. He knows this is it. And the time of my departure is at hand. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the what? Faith. Hey, listen, say it out loud with me, all right? I have kept the faith, just like the Apostle Paul, who gave his life for this faith. Hey, listen, this is not just a description of God's last time in generation before he comes. This is an expectation, these characteristics that God has always had. The Apostle Paul says, I know it's lights out for me, but my testimony is I have kept the faith, i.e., the world may have chosen to go that way, but I have determined in my heart to go this way. I have kept my faith in Christ. Is that unique to this end time generation? No, not at least according to the Apostle Paul, no. Which takes me back now to the question that I began with. Does God have a higher standing for his end time people than he has for us today? Hey, listen, would you look at another verse of scripture? Revelation, you're, you're probably still in Revelation. Revelation 14, no, go back to Revelation 12, all right? Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. All right, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Here it is now. This is in the context of war breaking out in heaven, dragging the Lucifer is thrown down to this planet, deceives the whole world, cast to this earth along with his, uh, his, uh, his, his angels. Verse 11, it says, and they, by the way, this is, this is a powerful proclamation. I love this. And they overcame him, i.e. the dragon, Lucifer, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the 
lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives today. You see, I believe at the end of time, God is going to have a whole generation of Job's who declares, listen, though they slay me, yet I will what? I will trust him. God is going to have a whole generation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that says, listen, go ahead, throw me in, make my day. Turn it up seven times hotter. I don't care. I will not bend the knee. I will not bow down to this image. There is only one true God, and him is who I worship. So go ahead. See, I believe that God is going to have a whole generation of Daniels. Listen, go ahead. Throw me into that lion's den. But I know God makes it very clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There is only one God to whom I will give my allegiance and that is to the God of heaven. Because you see, the same God in the fire, the same God in the lion's den, is the same God who will be with you, and he will be with me. Robert Goodrich has written a book entitled, Dear God, Where Are You? In the book, he asks this rather pointed, poignant question. Here it is, I'm quoting. How long has it been since in a group of friends or associates or in the face of some plan or scheme, we have said, count me out. It is not the Christian thing to do, so just count me out. How long has it been since we dared take that kind of stand for Christ? End quote. Could it be, think about this for just a moment, could it be that such a great multitudes will be drawn to the 144,000 in mass at the end of time? Could it be that there will be huge multitudes of people being drawn to the 144,000? And in some ways, one of the metaphors that I think of when I contemplate the 144,000 is I go back to that New Testament paradigm. Remember the birth of the New Testament church started with 120 in prayer in the upper room? And then Peter preaches that, that sermon at Pentecost. And how many came into the church in one day? 3,000, right? So it started small with 120. And then it began to grow. Thousands begin to come. Thousands begin to come. Thousands begin to come. Could it be that that's a metaphor, the 144,000? Starts with a smaller group. But as the multitudes see the way that the 144,000 are choosing to live their lives and they are taking a stand for Christ, they will be drawn to the stand of the 144,000. That's a metaphor, I think, that it might be worth considering. Could it be that such great multitudes will be drawn to the 144,000 because they see in this end-time generation a people of conviction, a people who will leave absolutely no doubt as to where they stand regardless of personal cost? I love this quote from the book Education in which she writes and says, the greatest want of the world is the want of men and women who will not be bought or sold, who in their inmost souls are true and honest, who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. And so I will simply share this here with you this Sabbath. You know what? I just want to be there. How about you? I just want to be there. I want to be a part of the end-time generation who is willing to take a stand for God and with conviction in our hearts 
determine, like the Daniels and the Jobs and the Shadrachs and the Meshachs and Abednegoes and the Apostle Pauls, all those who have stood for Christ throughout all the generations and said, I'm going to stand because he has already stood and given his life for me. And so let me leave you with this. The invitation, the invitation is clear and the promise is sure. Here's the invitation. Be thou faithful unto death. And here's the promise. And I will give you a crown of life. Do you want to be faithful? God's end time last generation. I want to be faithful to God no matter what. Because I know when it's all said and done, if I'm faithful, that God will give me and God will give you what he has promised. And that is a crown and eternal life. All right, I believe that we end with a song and then a prayer. And the worship and song is hymn number 300.